Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor David Linden will join us to discuss touch. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the sense of touch is so intimately related to ourselves that it's hard to escape it. And in his new book, Touch, the Science of Hand, Heart, and Mind, Professor David Linden, Johns Hopkins neuroscientist and author of the New York Times bestseller, The Compass of Pleasure, explores the mysterious sensation of touch, and where he links biology and behavioral science to offer an entertaining look at how we feel in every sense of the word. Professor Linden uh, is a professor of neuroscience at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. And again, he's written the new book, Touch, the Science of Hand, Heart, and Mind. And Professor Linder, we're very pleased to have you today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks for having me. Well, certainly a, a pleasure having you on the program. Certainly a, a fascinating book to, that you've written. I'm curious how you became interested in the, uh, the subject of touch and why you decided to write the book. Well, I'm always looking for aspects of our neural lives that people are interested in and where there's some interesting science to share. And in this case, these two things collided. Uh, I think people are intrinsically interested in touch and its emotional aspects. And there's been tremendous progress in the field uh, in the last 15 years, much of it from my colleagues here at Johns Hopkins. So I became a fanboy of touch research and wanted to share it with the world. So what is it about touch that distinguishes it so much from our other senses? Well, I think the thing about touch that is so crucial is that it is so fundamental that it's hard to imagine it not being there, right? So you can close your eyes and sort of imagine blindness, and you can plug your ears and imagine deafness, and you can pinch your nose, but there is no good way to imagine what it's like to lack the sense of touch. And the sense of touch, as we know from common language is something that we take to be intrinsically emotional. When we say, I am affected emotionally, we say, I am touched. When we say someone lacks social skills, we say they're tactless. Literally, he or she lacks touch. If you had a bad time, you might say, I had a rough day, or it's a sticky situation, or, or that's a hairy problem. All of these things in our language point to the primacy of touch in our experience, and particularly in our emotional experience. Is it because the sense of touch has greater uh, connections on, on the emotional system of the brain? Well, it turns out that the way touch is set up is that we have two basic parallel systems running from our skin 
to our brain. One of these systems works very quickly and is all about the facts. It's there for what we call discriminative information. So if I touch you on the back of your arm and I'm doing this with a, an eraser tip, you'll know exactly where you're being touched. You'll know how much force I'm using. Uh, you'll have a sense of the compressibility of the object that's touching you, and uh, all this information is coming to your brain very quickly through what are called mechanosensors that act very quickly. But in parallel, there's a separate emotional touch system in the brain, and that system is only present in hairy skin. It activates the brain rather slowly, and it is tuned for the speed and pressure and temperature of interpersonal touch. And these sensors actually wrap around the base of hair follicles and sense hair deflection. And instead of projecting to parts of the brain that are interested in the facts of touch, they project to parts of the brain uh, like the posterior insula and the anterior cingulate cortex that are involved in assessing the emotional and social aspects of touch. So is it important then to develop our sense of touch? Well, what we do know is that very early in life, touch is not optional for development. So you can be born blind and grow up and have a perfectly fulfilling life and your body and brain will work normally apart from not being able to see and the same for being born deaf. But for example, if you are born and placed in a situation like the Romanian orphanages in the uh, 1980s and 90s where there was no one to touch the newborns, what you find is that those kids grow up to have enormous, not just neuropsychiatric problems, but all kinds of medical problems, problems with their digestive systems and their immune systems. There seems to be something about interpersonal touch, parental touch in early life that's crucial for wiring up the brain and the body correctly. And does our sense of touch then change over, over the course of our lives? Yeah, it turns out that not just the sense of touch, but all of our senses change subtly over the course of our lives. So, for example, if you play violin and you practice three hours a day, your fingering hand will get a lot of touch sensation from fingering and touching the strings in the fretboard. And I'm sorry, not the fretboard, but the equivalent on a violin, whatever. <laughs> fretboards for a guitar, whatever the equivalent piece is. And as a consequence, slowly over time, the part of your brain that processes touch information that's devoted to the left hand will grow, and it will grow, and it will take over territory from adjacent parts of the body's representation. Likewise, if you are a mother rat and you are nursing your pups, the part of your brain that is devoted to your underside where your nipples are located will uh, expand during nursing, and then when you are done nursing your pups, it will gradually shrink back so that the normal amount of brain uh, in the non-nursing state returns at that point. And we presume that the same thing would happen for nursing humans. So is it just during these emotionally important times that these representations can change? Well, so it turns out that all of us have a sensory deprivation experiment that's going on our whole lives. So it turns out that 
Every year after about age 18, you lose about 1% of all your different kinds of touch receptors. And there are many different kinds. There are, there are ones for vibration and pressure and texture and pain and heat and cold. And you lose, roughly speaking, about 1% of all of them every year of your life. So you don't notice it because it's very slow, but by the time you get to uh, middle age, like my am, by the time I am, you realize that your touch sense is not as acute as it was when you were older. And by the time uh, you might be 70, you cannot, for example, feel the ground under your feet as well as you could because you have many fewer touch receptors on your soles. And this is one of several reasons why the elderly are so prone to falls, other ones having to do with muscle strength and, and the sense of balance, uh, which also contribute. But it's not just emotional situations. Our, our brain is constantly rewiring in the face of changing experience uh, all the time. Uh, so, for example, a a amputees, cases of phantom limb uh, perception is... So that is an example. So the brain has to rewire in the face of, of losing a limb, but it also shows up something else that's crucial about touch and crucial about sensation generally, and that is you are born, wired into your brain are certain expectations about the external world. We expect the sun to be higher in your visual in the visual field than lower. We expect certain things to happen. And so the issue is that when you are deprived of a limb, your brain is trying to make sense of this altered sensory world with the prior expectation that a limb is still going to be there. And that dissonance is what results in phantom limb sensation and, in many cases, in phantom limb pain, which can be very difficult to treat. So I think probably a lot of people have seen the famous pictures of the Penfield sensory homunculus. sort of shows the representations in other different body parts. Are, are there really just some parts of the, of the body that are more important to our sense of touch than others? Well, you know, I think the thing that you have to realize about the Penfield sensory homunculus is that it's, it, it, it's very, very rough. Let me give an example, right? So you're in the Penfield sensory homunculus, the tips of the fingers are enormously represented, as are the lips. And sure enough, the fingertips and the lips are extremely sensitive, and you can read Braille with them, which is a very difficult thing to do. They're very good at sensing fine form. Well, you might think that a place like the tip of the penis or the cornea of the eye, which are also incredibly sensitive. If you get a grain of sand pressing against each one of these bits of skin, you'll notice it enormously. But it turns out that you can't read Braille with either of those locations. And the reason is that there are nerve endings there that are very sensitive to small deformations but are not designed to detect fine form. So there is sensitivity and there is discriminability. And the Penfield sensory homunculus only tracks uh, discrimination. So for example, the genitals on the, and the cornea are small in the Penfield sensory homunculus. But if you were to make a different homunculus based on a different kind of sensation, not the ability to read Braille, but the ability to merely detect small deflections of the skin, well, then you would draw it differently. 
Curious then, how is it that various types of drugs then can work to sort of heighten and motivate aspects of touch? Well, there are some drugs that actually produce artificial touch sensation. So, for example, one common side effect of morphine and related drugs is a uh, artificial itching that actually originates not in the skin but in the uh, the spinal cord. There are other drugs like MDMA, known as ecstasy, that seem to motivate interpersonal touch, but I'm not sure if it's known how much of their actions are on the touch processing circuitry itself. So you mentioned a little bit about itch, and uh, I think a lot of people probably be curious about tickle. Is why, why is it that we can't tickle ourselves? That's a great question. No, there aren't special tickle receptors that anyone has identified. And, and the reason why we can't tickle ourselves is a special case of the fact that we tend to pay less sensation to self-generated movements. Just imagine you're walking down the street and your clothes are moving against your body. And you don't pay very much attention to that because you have a good way of predicting what those movements are based upon the movement of your limbs and your trunk. And as a consequence, you tend to ignore them. You ignore them because the parts of the, the brain that are sending the commands to your muscles to move are also sending commands to your touch sensors saying, let's damp you down and not pay attention. Uh, at this particular moment. Uh, whereas if you were still standing there and not walking and you have the sensation on your skin that normally came from your clothes rubbing up against your body while you walk down the street, well, you'd pay a tremendous amount of attention to that. So it's the same thing in self-tickling. When someone else tickles you, you never know, you don't know exactly when it's going to happen. And as a result, it's a strong sensation. When you go to tickle yourself, it turns out that a part of the brain that's involved in fine-tuning and coordinating movements and sensations, called the cerebellum, sends inhibitory signals to the parts of your brain involved in processing touch sensation, suppressing them. So you can't tickle yourself very well uh, unless you have damage to your cerebellum or unless you're one of a subset of schizophrenics who seem to be able to tickle themselves very well or, and this is another case, unless you use a, a robot interposed between your hand and your body. And that robot is designed so that the movements of your hand no longer correspond very well to the tickling movements on your skin. So, so in a way, it's just unpredictable nature of touch that uh, leads to the surprise emotional response. Exactly. We are hardwired to pay a lot of attention to things that are out there in the external world. We are hardwired to pay less attention to sensations that uh, we cause ourselves. You mentioned a little about schizophrenia. Are there, are there certain types of psychiatric or even physical conditions that affect our sense of touch? So there are quite a number of physical conditions. For example, there are people who are born without the ability to feel pain. There are people who their pain receptors uh, in, their, in their skin and their viscera are active all the time spontaneously, so they're in pain constantly. There are people who 
have diseases such that they lose the discriminative factual information about touch, so-called primary sensory neuronopathy, yet they can still detect an interpersonal touch that is conveyed uh, to their hairy skin. So there are, there are all kinds of ways in which diseases can affect touch sensation. So I'm curious, uh, where is Frontiers of Touch research at now, and what of touch do you think uh, require focus and, and investment in terms of funding? Well, I would say the most, the clearest example in terms of, I think, of the benefit of humanity is research on pain and itch, because these are things that cause enormous amounts of suffering. And right now, our drugs uh, for these things are, are, are terribly crude sledgehammers with terrible side effects, right? If you want to have a, a topical anesthetic, you get lidocaine injected for, uh, for dental work, for example, where your entire face is numb because lidocaine blocks electrical signals from all forms of sensation from your face, and it also blocks your ability of your brain to control the muscles in that part of your face. It turns out, however, that the neurons that convey pain information to the brain have a particular molecular flavor of ion channel, uh, a particular kind of voltage-gated sodium channel that is only in, in those kinds of neurons and not in any other. And so if you could make a drug that blocked that sodium channel specifically, well, then you would have a terrific, much improved topical anesthetic. Likewise, for chronic pain, well, you know, we give people morphine, but, but morphine's terrible. It incapacitates you. It's addicting. It has all kinds of very effective, but the, but the side effects are, are terrible. And consequence, it's both underused in many cases and abused. So if we can understand pain transduction circuitry at a, at a fine molecular level, then we can build really, really good drugs for chronic pain that hopefully will not have the disadvantages of sledgehammer drugs like morphine. I think a lot of people would be uh, grateful for that. Yeah, so this is just one example of how touch research can help the state of humanity enormously. Chronic pain is a huge medical problem worldwide. Its, it's, it's prevalence is enormous. Uh, well, we are running slightly out of time. I'm just curious if you have some uh, final words regarding uh, the sense of touch. I think the thing I really want people to, and this is true of touch, but it's true of all sensation, is that your brain isn't built to give you the most accurate representation of the external world. Rather, it extracts those aspects of the external world that it has evolved to believe are the most important for you. It blends them with all your past experience and with your emotions and serves the whole thing up as if it were the God's own truth. But it's not. Your brain's not being honest with you. You are getting a highly processed and particular view of the world through your touch sense and through every sense. I think what it means is that if you're highly invested in the idea that you are getting all the information that's out there in the external world, and as a consequence, you can be utterly rational and be entirely in charge of driving the bus, we now know that that's wrong. Well, it is a very fascinating book, and again, it's called Touch, the Science of Hand, Heart, and Mind, and the author is uh, Professor David Linden. And uh, Professor Linden, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. 
thanks, it was lots of fun. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on rocking.